0: if you'll please take your bibles and turn to matthew chapter 5 matthew chapter 5 beginning with verse 1 as we continue our study through the gospel of matthew we come again to the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived our lord Jesus' sermon on the mount matthew 5 1 says and seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The last time that we were together, we examined the first two beatitudes and saw that contrary to popular opinion, the beatitudes are not secrets to temporal happiness. Instead, they're actually pronouncements of spiritual blessing, all related to the process of our salvation. And the Beatitudes march us through essentially the process of Christian salvation describing to us the transformation that makes it possible for us to actually live the life that is described in the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, the Lord Jesus blessed those who are poor in spirit, that is, who recognize that they are spiritual beggars with nothing to offer God, with nothing to bargain before God. Then he blesses those who mourn. And this refers to mourning and grieving over our sin in an expression of deep and sincere repentance. And the Lord Jesus promised in those first two Beatitudes that he would bring the repentant sinner into his kingdom and that he would grant the comfort of forgiveness, reconciliation, and full restoration to that repentant disciple. But the process of salvation doesn't end there with simply repenting of our sins and receiving God's forgiveness and being reconciled to the God that we were previously estranged from. No, salvation continues with the true disciple surrendering to God's authority and God granting us eternal life with the disciple then longing for holiness and god quenching that desire by granting holiness to us and finally as we'll see this morning the process of salvation continues with the very merciful character of god being taken on by the disciple so that they treat others with kindness and mercy and compassion and receive that same kindness mercy and compassion from the lord first of all the lord jesus promises eternal life to those who submit to god's authority over their lives christ says blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth who are the meek Sometimes meekness is described simply as humility, sometimes as gentleness, sometimes as self-control, but none of these adjectives quite get to the point of what the Lord Jesus is describing here. The Beatitudes are constantly referring to key Old Testament texts, and those Old Testament texts that Jesus is alluding to are necessary for a proper understanding of these promises. And when we go back to the Old Testament and look at descriptions of the meek, what we find is that the meek are those who, like the poor in spirit, live in dependence upon God and are characterized by submission to God one scholar who researched the adjective meek throughout the old testament said that a meek person is quote one who feels that he is a servant in relationship to god and who subjects himself to god's authority quietly and without resistance i think that's a good definition because our key text for understanding this particular beatitude is psalm 37 verse 11. The psalm says, the meek will inherit the land. Now, some of the connections between this beatitude and that psalm are obvious, aren't they? We have the adjective meek. We have the promise will inherit. But there is another connection that we might have overlooked. And that is that the word translated land in the Greek Old Testament and the word translated earth... In the Greek New Testament are the same Greek noun, gay, gamma, eta. Jesus is obviously referring to Psalm 37, And how are the meek who will inherit the land described in Psalm 37? Well, first of all, the meek are those who trust in the Lord verses 3 and 5, who delight in the Lord, verse 4, who rest in the Lord, verse 7, who wait for the Lord, verse 9. The meek are described as those who are upright in conduct. Six times the meek are described as righteous. Twice they're described as blameless. The meek is described as having the law of God in his heart And the one whose steps do not slip. So you see the point. A meek person is someone who trusts God, depends upon God, and yet submits to God's authority, and consequently seeks to live in obedience to his commandments. And the Lord Jesus promises that the meek will inherit the earth. Now, I've already pointed out that the word land in Psalm 3711 and earth in this beatitude are the very same noun. So why do we translate it differently in the two texts? Well, that's because in Psalm 3711, the promise relates to inheriting the promised land. That is the land of Canaan that God had granted to Abraham and his descendants in the Abrahamic covenant. But in Jesus' beatitude, this promise of inheriting the land is greatly expanded to include not just a relatively small patch of ground on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea, but no, the entire recreated and restored earth. How do we know that? Well, look at the way the Lord Jesus uses this very same noun a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount. Only a few verses later, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And there's that noun again. But then he goes on to say, you are the light of the world, all right? That is synonymous parallelism in which the lord jesus is defining the word gay or land earth as world the fact is when matthew's gospel uses this particular noun and he's referring to a specific geographical area it always has adjectival modifiers matthew speaks for example of the land of Judah or the land of Israel. But when he uses this noun without further qualification, it is a reference to the entire earth. And so our translators got this right. Jesus is not just promising the meek that they will inherit the promised land of Canaan. He is promising that we will inherit a restored and recreated earth. We've looked before at Matthew 19, 28, in which the Lord Jesus describes the messianic age as the palingenesia. Remember, it's a word that means a new creation, a new beginning, a new genesis. And this is when he is going to rid God's creation of all of the corruption and ruin that sin brought about and restore this created world to its original perfection. So what Jesus is saying here is that the meek will inherit the world, the earth. It has become like the original paradise of Eden as Christ performs the miracle Of new creation. So the question we have to ask is Am I meek in this sense that the Lord Jesus intends? Not just am am I humble, not just am I self controlled, am I gentle? No, do I live in dependence on God? And is my life characterized by submission to God? Have I surrendered my will to His will? Have I asked God to be in charge of my life? Have I recognized that my life is not my own, to be lived my own way, but that my life belongs to God and is to be lived God's way? Because this beatitude says clearly that only those who submit themselves to God can expect to enjoy eternity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the recreated earth. What the Lord Jesus is teaching here clearly is that our eternity is not going to be floating around as some kind of disembodied spirit in some ethereal realm. No, our eternity is going to be living on the physical earth that has been perfected by the power of the Creator. But then the Lord Jesus gives us another promise. He promises righteousness to those who yearn for it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst are metaphors for the most intense longings. Unfortunately, these metaphors are not as powerful in their meaning to modern-day Americans as they were to people in first-century Palestine, because there are very few modern Westerners who have ever known real hunger or real thirst. But there were very few people in Jesus' original audience for this Sermon on the Mount who had not experienced real hunger and real thirst. The people in Jesus' time had sometimes suffered horrible deprivation due to famine, to siege, or to poverty. We see examples of this in 2 Kings 6 where there is a famine so severe that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. A fourth of a cab of dove's dung sold for five shekels of silver. And even worse, tender-hearted mothers cannibalized their own children. My point is, the ancients knew of hunger that was so overwhelming so intense that a person would do almost anything to satisfy it hunger and thirst were powerful metaphors for the most intense of cravings consequently the old testament sometimes uses hunger or thirst to describe the true people's a people of God's longing For the fulfillment of their deepest spiritual needs we see an example of this in Psalm 42 verse 2 where the psalmist thirsts for God like a deer panting for the streams of water now Jesus could have easily described his disciples as those who desire to obey, who aspire for holiness. But such language simply was not powerful enough to describe the deep longing of the true disciple's heart. And so instead, Christ says, blessed are those who hunger, who thirst for righteousness blessed are those who long to live a godly life as much as a starving man wants his next bite of bread or a man dying of thirst wants to wet his tongue with a single droplet of water some have argued that this righteousness that the disciple longs for so desperately is imputed righteousness that's the righteousness of justification where the heavenly judge declares us not guilty because christ was punished for our sins so that we could be rewarded for his righteousness and you know that i believe in the doctrine of justification by faith jesus bore the punishment for our sin so that we could be rewarded for his perfect life Our salvation is absolutely dependent on justification. But it is not the righteousness of justification that the Lord Jesus is referring to here. It is instead the righteousness of sanctification and of glorification. It is the actual righteousness that is the result of God's transforming work in our lives, how do we know that? Well, we know that because that is the way the word righteousness is always used in the Gospel of Matthew, without a single exception. We're going to see an example of this later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five twenty. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And What did that righteousness consist of? That righteousness involves, verse 19, doing the commandments and teaching others to do them as well. Then in Matthew 6, 1, the Lord Jesus talks about how we, quote, practice our righteousness To practice righteousness means to actually do it. This isn't just the standing of righteousness that we have in the eyes of the heavenly judge. This is an actual righteousness that we exhibit through our behavior. And so what the Lord Jesus is saying is, that although the disciple of Jesus Christ is deeply grateful that we have been declared righteous by the heavenly judge based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are not satisfied with just that justifying righteousness. We have a deep longing for actual righteousness. We earnestly aspire for personal Holiness. It's interesting that the participles that the Lord Jesus used here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, are present participles that speak of something that is continual and ongoing. And that is the true disciple of Jesus Christ never gets to that point in this life where they think, okay, I've arrived. I'm satisfied with how righteous I am right now. I've met my quota of holiness. I was working with a neighbor a few weeks ago, and we were doing what the neighbor referred to as a good deed. And the neighbor said, well, I guess we've done our good deed for the day. And I said, well, that's good because we wouldn't want to exceed our quota. (laughs) My friend wasn't quite sure how to take that comment. And we don't have this uh, little quota of righteousness that we're going to be satisfied with. We're not going to say, okay, one day today, check that box off, now I can live however I want to live. No, what we aspire for is full and complete righteousness. And our yearning for it is constant. It is perpetual. And the Lord Jesus promises that when we have this hunger and thirst for a holy life we will be satisfied we will be filled with this righteousness now the construction that's used here is what is known as a divine passive it is a reverent way of referring to the activity of God let me say that again this is a reverent way of referring to the activity of God. Very important to understand that we do not fill ourselves with this righteousness that we aspire for. This righteousness is granted to us through God's gracious transforming work. This righteousness that we aspire for is not something that we achieve on our own it is God's gracious gift and that is key to understanding the entire sermon on the mount and there are a lot of scholars who argue that the sermon on the mount is quote an impossible ideal describes a way of life that we could never actually have but no I'm going to argue that the Sermon on the Mount isn't an impossible ideal. It's actually describing the normal life of the disciple of the Lord Jesus. It's describing for us that righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees without which no one will enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 20. But this righteousness isn't one that we muster up in ourselves. It is a righteousness that God graciously imparts and supplies. This righteousness is not imputed, but it is imparted. God grants it to us as His grace gift. And it is that understanding that prevents the Sermon on the Mount from degenerating into some form of legalism or some form of works salvation. God requires this righteousness of us, but we don't provide it. He grants it to us. Frankly, that's the only way that we can make sense of some things that the Lord Jesus is going to say. This righteousness is one that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. It is a righteousness that not only keeps divine commandments, but exhibits divine character. It is a righteousness that Jesus describes in Matthew 5:48 in the command be perfect. Therefore, even as the heavenly father is perfect, that's the kind of righteousness that the believer is to aspire for. We should long to have the very character of the holy God because we understand that the fundamental commandment of the old Testament, in addition to the great commandment of Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself is to, quote, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But this holiness is something that we do not accomplish. How do we know that? Well, take a look, for example, at what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and pat you on the back and give you an applause and say, attaboy, you pulled it off. No, so they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Now, why would my Father in heaven get the glory for my good works? Why would the Father in heaven get the glory for your good works? It's because he is the one who enabled you to perform them by changing your heart, by renewing your character, by changing your priorities and your desires. The righteousness that the Sermon on the Mount demands is a divine gift graciously wrought in the heart of the disciple by God himself. Our good works bring glory to God and not to us because he is the source and author of them. We can think of it this way. A tiny infant can hunger and thirst, can't it? But is it capable of satisfying that hunger and quenching that thirst on its own? Absolutely not. Whoever saw a newborn baby tie on an apron and go to the stove and get out the skillet or, or, or whatever and prepare a meal and then sit down and take a knife and fork, and? that's not how things work. If that little baby's hunger is going to be satisfied and thirst is going to be quenched, assuming that the baby's bottle-fed, then a loving parent has to take that bottle and sterilize it, then mix the formula, and then warm the bottle up, and then feed the baby. That hunger and thirst can only be satisfied and quenched by another And it is the same way with the hunger and thirst for righteousness that characterizes the Christian disciple. Only a gracious God who transforms minds and hearts and character and behavior can produce such righteousness in us the righteousness described in the sermon on the mount the righteousness that keeps the least of the commandments the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and pharisees the righteousness that not only fulfills divine commandments but expresses divine character is the result of transforming grace god's life-changing power now the future tense here is what we might describe as an eschatological future. The future tenses at the end of most of the Beatitudes indicate that although there is a partial fulfillment of these promises in this life here and now, after all, we who mourned in repentance have received some comfort and so forth, The ultimate fulfillment will not occur until the second coming of Jesus Christ, until our resurrection and glorification. So Christ is actually looking beyond this present life to the moment that we have been resurrected. And in our resurrection, all of the corruption of this physical body has been removed. And we are recreated to be not just good, but very good, like Adam and Eve were before the fall, with a capacity for holy living that we simply do not enjoy in this life. And at that moment, the commandment will at last be fulfilled. And we will be perfect in our character and behavior. We will be holy even as god is holy we will not enjoy this sinless perfection until resurrection and glorification but it is promised to us then so the question that we have to ask is am i hungering and thirsting for righteousness am i yearning to be a godly man or a godly woman Do I truly aspire for holiness? Unfortunately, many people today simply view salvation as getting into heaven. Dr. Adrian Rogers was fond of saying that salvation is not simply about getting us into heaven. It's about getting heaven into us. It's about imparting to us the very character of God so that we resemble our Heavenly Father more and more and more and bring Him great glory in the process. Do you hunger for righteousness? Do you thirst for righteousness? Are you simply satisfied with the present spiritual status quo? The Lord Jesus urges us to hunger and to thirst. And he promises that God will not ignore the cries of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness any more than a loving mother can ignore the cry of a famished baby. He will grant us righteousness until one day our lives meet the lofty standard of the Sermon on the Mount, and we are characterized by a righteousness that seems impossible for us right now. Then the Lord Jesus goes on to give us another promise. He promises forgiveness to those who express forgiveness to others. He says, verse 7 Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciful are those who relate to others with a forgiving and compassionate spirit. Mercy is something that the Gospel of Matthew frequently emphasizes, but there are two really key texts for understanding Jesus' point here the first is the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 21 through 35 you'll remember that Peter said how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him seven times he thought he was being generous but the Lord Jesus says no 70 times seven times And he explained, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. That's the wealth of an entire kingdom. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold into slavery and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. That's a promise he couldn't possibly keep, by the way. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is a staggering expression of forgiveness. But when that same servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him he began to choke him saying pay what you owe so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him have patience with me and i will pay you now that should have jogged that man's memory of the forgiveness he had just received because this is the same plea he had just made to the king before the king forgave him but instead With cruelty and callousness, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the entire debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. Because you pleaded with me, and here's the key verse, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What does mercy entail here in this important parable in Matthew's gospel? Forgiving others as God has forgiven us. And that's what the beatitude is all about. When Christ says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. He's saying if we are not willing to express mercy to others, we cannot expect mercy from God on final judgment day. Now, many people are going to press back and say, oh, no, 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 no. But let me warn you, if you want to reject the clear statement that Jesus makes there, you're not just going to have to revise the teaching of this parable. You're going to have to revise, well, the model prayer where Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that is the one petition of the model prayer that was so very important that Christ went on to provide commentary on it. And his commentary was, If you forgive the sins of others, God will forgive your sins. And if you do not forgive the sins of others, neither will God forgive yours. This is the very same thing that the Lord Jesus is going to teach in Matthew chapter 7 when he tells us, By what standard you judge, you will be judged. And what he means by that is, if your judgment is compassionate and merciful, you can expect that same standard of judgment when you stand before the holy God to give an account. But if your standard of judgment for others is harsh and cruel and demanding, then you can expect the same rigor from God in your final judgment we could go on this principle is everywhere in the teaching of the lord jesus and of the sermon on the mount now why is it that forgiving others is essential to receiving forgiveness from god in final judgment well forgiving others is an essential expression of genuine repentance If we're not willing to graciously forgive others for their sins, it's a good indication that we have no clue how sinful we are in the eyes of a holy God, how helpless we are to escape his holy wrath on our own, how severe the punishment that we should face truly is if we are cruel and unforgiving toward others it shows that we have not begun to fathom the depths of our own depravity it's the same thing that's going on in the parable of the unforgiving servant he was viewing his sin against the holy god as small in comparison to another sin against him when he should have realized that our sins against the Holy God are gigantic in comparison to the sins of others against us, which are small and trifling by comparison. The Apostle Paul picks up on this element when he teaches in his epistles that uh, we are to forgive even as God for Christ's sake forgave us And when he describes what we are to forgive, he says we are to forgive grievances. And the word is a conscious effort on Paul's part to minimize the sins that others have committed against us. Why? Because those sins probably seem pretty big to the victim. Well, Paul uses that language because he is seeing... The sins of others against us in comparison to our sins against God. And when we make that comparison, all sins of others against us are small and trivial and relatively insignificant. Expressing mercy to others is essential to having a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Christ says in Matthew 5 20 again, unless you have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And one of the sins that the Lord Jesus so frequently rebukes the scribes and Pharisees for is their lack of mercy. Matthew nine thirteen, Matthew twelve seven, Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. Showing mercy to others is absolutely essential to true Christian discipleship. It is an essential expression of genuine conversion. But being merciful doesn't just entail forgiving others who have sinned against us, it actually entails many forms of kindness, and compassion. And I say this because when the Lord Jesus talks about almsgiving, gifts to support the needy, in Matthew 6, 2, he uses a Greek noun that literally means acts of, guess what? Mercy. Acts of mercy. Well, mercy doesn't just compel us to forgive, Mercy compels us to be kind to those who are in need, to be compassionate and loving to others in every imaginable way. Why is it so important that the disciple of the Lord Jesus be characterized by mercy? Because one of the key principles of the Sermon on the Mount is what we might call the law of spiritual genetics like father, like son. And what Christ is going to argue is that because we have been given spiritual birth, the new birth, being born again, by the Heavenly Father, we have now partaken of His spiritual character. And one of the essential attributes of God's character, articulated again and again in the Old Testament, is His great mercy. He is kind and compassionate, forgiving generation after generation after generation of those who have rebelled and sinned against Him. And the point that Christ is making is that we can't begin to exhibit the character of our Heavenly Father and demonstrate that we truly are His spiritual children without expressing mercy to others as well. And when we characterize by this merciful character of the heavenly father, it demonstrates we really are his children. We really are subjects of his kingdom. And consequently, we will be granted mercy on judgment day. So the question we have to ask is, are we characterized by divine mercy Are we so unfair as to withhold mercy from others all the while expecting to receive mercy from god or will we graciously forgive others who have wronged us will we show compassion to the needy and to the hurting how to do people whose opinion should matter view us? Do they see us as merciless, as vicious, as cruel, as bitter, as heartless, as unforgiving? Or do they recognize us as merciful, kind, compassionate, and loving? we're not characterized by this loving mercy. We simply are not true children of God. That's one of the major themes of John's first epistle. He that loves not knows not God. Why? For God is love. And the point that he is making is that when we become children of God by virtue of the new birth, we partake of God's own character. And his fundamental attribute is love. Thus, the true disciple will be loving too. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes? Some of you are puzzled when I describe the Sermon on the Mount as the normal Christian life because you're thinking, this isn't normal. Uh, I didn't say normal life. I said normal Christian life. Because Jesus makes it clear that the life of the true disciple is not going to be natural. It's going to be supernatural. It's not going to be ordinary, it's going to be extraordinary because of the transformation that God brings about inside us. All of us are sinners who deserve the judgment of God. And there's nothing we can do to make up for the punishment that our sins deserve. Let's be very clear about that. Our only hope is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life we cannot live, then went to the cross and bore the punishment for our sins in our place so that we could escape that punishment. But don't miss the fact that when God saves us, He does not merely forgive us. He also changes us from the inside out. It changes our desires, our priorities, our character so that those who are forgiven increasingly become truly righteous people. That's why the apostle Paul loves to refer to Christians, not as sinners, but as saints, as holy ones. Because they are people to whom the very holy character of God is being imparted by the Spirit's transforming work. That's possible you're here this morning and you think, Well, I was saved when I was X number of years old because I walked down an aisle and I signed a card and I prayed a prayer and I asked Jesus to forgive me. But if truth be told, your life never changed. Let me be very clear that's not the gospel. The gospel assures us that God not only forgives believers, but he changes believers. Paul says, If any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. If your life has not been changed so that you are meek, that is, you seek to live in submission to God's authority. If your life has not been changed so that you hunger and thirst for righteousness, and if your life has not been changed so that you relate to others mercifully and kindly and compassionately, then my plea with you would be to truly repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as God, Savior, and King right now and receive the true, gift of salvation if there is no meekness if there is no hunger and thirst for righteousness if there is no heart of mercy then Christ is clear there will be no place of inheritance in that new earth there will be no final satisfaction with righteousness And even more frighteningly, there will be no mercy when we stand before the judgment seat of the Lord. Repent and believe today. Dear Father, we commit this invitation to you and we pray that the gospel has been clear We pray that your Holy Spirit would move each of us to search our hearts and our lives and character for evidence of the transformation that only you can bring about. And if any has not truly repented and believed and been both forgiven and changed, I pray that you would move them to repentance and faith by your powerful grace right now. In Jesus' name, amen.